Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Revenue Builders podcast. I'm John McMahon, and my special guest today is Poan Deshpande, who's a serial entrepreneur. He started his own company, Curata, which developed content marketing and analytics software. Curata had acquired over a thousand customers, 20% of which were Fortune 100 companies. After 13 and a half years of Curata, Poan moved into ML Ops and then Scale AI as a director of products. After Scale AI, Pawan has become an angel investor for the last seven years. And he's invested in a number of really good companies, Toast, Upside Foods, and Link Squares. Today, we want to utilize Pawan's firsthand experience with customer success in a discussion, what we'll call customer critical care. Welcome, Pawan. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me, John. Yeah, you're welcome. Pawan, well, first, let's let's talk a little bit about some of the products that you developed. Why don't you talk about that a little? Sure, sure. Well, I, you know, I've, I've been a lifelong builder. I started coding when I was in the fourth grade. So there's a history of a lot of side projects that, that I consider products as well that, that I built over the years. I had uh, you know, email spam apps, you know, in the early days of the internet. I had my own radio station in high school, online radio station. So those are all kind of working the product muscle, but in a, in a more commercial setting, um, a number, a couple of products that, that I've, I've shipped um, was uh, at, at Google, one of the more prolific ones is their machine transliteration algorithm. So a large part of the world doesn't have English keyboard. They have English keyboards, but they don't speak English. So they type in their native languages and it's kind of hard for them to do so. And so I built the first prototype of Google's algorithm, which automatically will transliterate and make the text show up in their native language. And so now that's wow. been integrated in every Google product. Um, and it's really empowered a lot of people who otherwise didn't have a voice online. Um, so that was one of my first ones. I did that while I was still in, in school. Um, and then after graduating at Curata, I shipped three commercial products, one consumer uh, application and two around content marketing, around content curation and content analytics. Um, and more recently, as I've kind of got back into the machine learning space um, at, at Domino Data Lab, where I was, um, launched a product around monitoring the health of machine learning models, just like how companies like New Relic and Datadog monitor how healthy your applications are. Um, these days, as machine learning models go online, you need to monitor how healthy those models are in production settings. So that's the product that will ship there. At Scale AI, I worked on a brand new product uh, around deciding what data should be captured from large autonomous vehicle fleets. And these could be self-driving cars and drones that capture a lot of data, but really you have to decide what data you want to keep, what you want to throw out, what you want to ship over, over the wire. And um, so this is like machine learning algorithms that run on the vehicles that decide what data should be kept and not. So those are some of the, just a quick overview of some of the products I've worked on. Currently I'm at Linea AI, 
uh, it's in the data pipelining space. And so for the non-technically inclined folks, um, data, it's the lifeblood of AI. So data it flows through what we call our pipelines, much like blood flows through blood vessels. And pipeline, pipelines are very intricate. They break often. Every minute they break, it causes major business losses. And so right now it takes engineers a lot of time to fix these broken pipelines. And the product that I'm currently working on helps reduce that to a matter of minutes. It sounds to me like you left some product, a lot of products out also. I, I did. I did. It's just, uh, <laughs> happy to talk about those as well. Yeah. So you have this huge desire to constantly try to build or develop new products. Yeah, I think products is one, but I think more broadly, you know, it could be products, processes, cultures, frameworks. And I think what we're going to talk about today is the critical care framework that, that I put together. And I consider that an active building and creation as well. Uh, it just may not be software per se. Yeah. So let's turn our attention towards that, you know, in customer success, you know, what you you know call critical care. Your startup Carada once faced, you know, a dismal like 60 percent churn rate, renewing only 40 percent of your revenue. And it was tough. You were on the brink of losing hope, but you turned the tide and you actually doubled your renewal rates in just nine months. So I'd like to share some of those learnings with the audience today. And, you know, what I thought we could do is start at a high level with the you know, four distinct ways that companies handle customer success. And then we can dive into each one a little bit later. Sure. Sure. Sounds good. So um, why don't we, why don't we start with, you know, just like customer support, what do you call, you know, urgent care? Yeah. And maybe before we get into that, uh, just to give a little more perspective on the situation, we're talking about the 40%. I think it's useful to talk about the causes for that, like what the situation was. And then, yes. and then maybe talk about like, you know, how, how we address that. So, you know, I, we, we, we had this quarter, we had 40% uh, renewal rate, 60% churn on, on, on the dollar. And, um, you know, for me as a CEO of the company, you know, that was, that's painful and it was a real wake up call. So what I typically do as a CEO is kind of zoom in on the weakest link. And, and that quarter is very obvious that customer success, something was not going right there. And so what I did is I, I pulled my desk into the customer success room. Um, and I, you know, I like to have an open office setting. So it was visibly open office, but there was actually a glass wall behind the customer success room. And I really wasn't privy to kind of the conversations and what was going on in that room. And so it was really eye-opening when I pulled up a desk in there and I would just work out of there and hear the conversations and gather. And what I really heard was a there was a culture of futility. And what I mean by that is the customer success team would say, we reached out to the customer three times. They never answered our, our calls, picked up, replied to our emails. Um, we did all we could. We're just going to leave it at that. Or they would say, hey, sales brought us this really bad deal. They oversold the product. We can't do much about it. Or the product is really uh, you know, flaky. It's really brittle. You know, We can't really do much about this. So this really the diametric opposite of having culture of ownership. And that's where we were starting from. And to me, it became pretty obvious that that was really the cultural issue. And so I, we can talk about this framework and the framework is really centered around making a culture change in a very systematic way. Um, so that that was really the the, 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 the kind of genesis of, of this whole process here. Yeah, one is like, like customer success has to own it. And you brought up two other points. Uh, one is that your product actually has to be able to deliver, you know, the the solution for the customers. And then what you hear a lot of these conversations between customer success or client success and sales is you'll when somebody tries to go in and mediate, 
they'll hear, well, as a sales guys, we sold a really good deal, but these people over here in client success, they can't support our customers. Client success will say, we know how to support customers. Those people over there in sales, they sold a really bad deal. And I think that's what you were referring to, right? Absolutely. And, and you know, that finger pointing also goes to product slash engineering as well, where customer success says, hey, we're doing as best we can, but you you guys haven't built a good product. And <laughs> the product says, hey, we built a good, good product. You just don't know how to service the customer. So if the finger pointing goes all around in a bad culture. And uh, as an example of how to break that, um, one thing that it is after observing this finger pointing between sales and customer success in particular, and sales was overselling, I, I, you know, in some cases as well. So I don't want to just put everything on customer success here is I pulled the customer success team out of that room and made more a pod structure. So the AEs and the customer success reps are sitting together in a pod. Um, and that then kind of broke down that literally broke down that wall and also fostered collaboration. So on active deals, customer success is now involved and the customer, the salespeople are learning how to sell more accurately. And then there's a, there's a smoother transition from uh, pre-sale to post-sale. I like that. I think that's really important, especially in the early days of a company. I think it gets more difficult as you become larger and larger, but the ability to tie the client success people together with the salespeople can really, really be telling for both sides. Yeah. Yeah. And and another thing that we did also is because sales was overselling the product, I, there's one point where I actually said, hey, sales, you can't sell this product. You're off the phones selling this. New, this is a new product. So it's a more much more technical analytics product. You're off the phones. You can't sell this product until you pass a certain certification. So uh, I had customer success and our product team actually coach our sales team on how the product works, how it integrates with adjacent products, a lot of technical details, how it compares to other products in the market. And then for each of those modules, there's a quiz. And if a salesperson passed all those modules in this online quiz, then they're allowed to go back on the phone and sell the product. So it forced a collaboration between product, customer success, and sales to really kind of uh, you know, uh, kind of teach sales how to how to effectively sell the, sell the product. So. Yeah, I like that. But going to your main point, for client success, it was the fact that you have to own it. You can't be, as you described it, this group that's, you know, just enamored with futility. Like, it's just not, not, not my fault and there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah, and I think that, you know, when you think of goal setting and OKRs, there's ones that are activity oriented and ones that are outcome oriented. And the outcome oriented are more powerful. You know, if we take the more sales analogy, it's like, how many calls like did I make? How many opportunities they create? But what matters at the end is how much revenue you close, right? And so that's the outcome. <laughs> and so for our customer success, it needs to be the same thing. Revenue and renewals and upsells are the ultimate outcome here, not how many times you try to outreach and call the customer, for example. Yeah, I agree. Well, let's go into these four different um, areas and uh, the ways in which you know companies handle customer success. And I think first one you talk about is more reactive support, which is customer support, or you call it urgent care. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I, I drew a medical analogy here, and I think that's a one-to-one -one mapping here. So I, I think most most companies, you know, even even consumer companies, SMBs that serve SMBs, um, you know, they have support. And support, it's akin to urgent care. So when you go to a doctor, um, it's when you actually have an acute need, like something is actually wrong, you go to them to, to get help on a time critical, you know, it's, it's something you need at that moment then. Um, it doesn't necessarily address 
the health of the whole account or in the medical analogy, the health of the whole patient, it's really addressing a single point issue. Um, and it doesn't necessarily, it's not preventive care. It's not preventing other for other issues that may happen in the future. It's really addressing one specific thing. And so this is like the base foundation of any business. I think they need to have support, whether it's a services company or, or a product company. Um, right. And it's, and that, so that's, that's, yeah, that's where we start from. Then the second one is onboarding. Yeah. So onboarding, you know, not, Every company has this, um, but it's like the next level of sophistication up. So this is in a uh, in a product, let's say a SaaS company, where you do need to onboard the customer. And the, the analogy I drew here is with neonatal care. So uh, when when a, a baby is first born, that really intensive care that's provided to check the whole health of the child and kind of set them up for the rest of their life. Um, and what you're optimizing for here is maximizing adoption. So getting the customers adopting the product. Um, minimizing that time, the setup time, you want to get them out of onboarding as quick as possible, but in a good state. Um, and whatever you do then greatly impacts the lifetime of the customer. If you if you kind of botch the the onboarding, it's really hard to do a course correction later. Just like how you know perhaps for infants, if they're not provided the right care, the right nutrition in the, the first year of their life, you know that can impair you know their their future health going forward. Yeah. And the next one is um, business reviews, quarterly business views, or just, you know, even annual business reviews. Yeah. So this is the next level of sophistication. Typically, I think we see this in more mid-market to enterprise SaaS companies. And the analogy I draw here is with physical exams. So it's not something that the um, the patient asks for or the customer is asking for. It's something really that the care provider or the vendor it wants to have done. And so this is done on a, a routine basis in a lot of SaaS businesses. This would be on a quarterly basis in a, in a medical setting on an annual basis. Um, and it's proactive care based on a schedule. And it's holistic. It's not like urgent care where you're just looking at one specific issue. You know, you may address specific issues in the course of the business review, but you're really looking at the whole health of, of the account or the patient. Um, and you're trying to catch unreported issues, discover them as a part of that, and also prevent other issues that may potentially come up in, in the future. And the last one is the big one, critical care. Yeah. And the last one is critical care, which is one that um, I think not a ton of companies are are, are doing. I think some are, uh, the, uh, but this is probably the most sophisticated and we could talk about why it, it takes a lot of work to actually um, get this to work. But it's like, this is the, the patient analogy here is you have like a heartbeat monitor on, on um, and you notice that something, this, this arrhythmia or something irregular about the heartbeat, you rush an ambulance to the patient to go take care of them um, and then and there. So it's not the patient coming to the doctor. The patient doesn't even know something's wrong with them in that case. But you as a care provider know that something's wrong with them. So in the, the SAFs world, this is monitoring the patient or the, the customer in this case for signs that something may be off. And there's a number of different signs that something may be off. Uh, a drop in product usage, they haven't paid their bills on time, a change in leadership. There's you know, a whole host of reasons that we can talk about here. But if something is off, um, you, kind of, you, you, um, you kind, of, kind of swarm the, the customer and really try to figure out, is something actually wrong? How can you remediate the situation? So it's a very proactive form of support. Yeah. And if you're doing it right, you can detect very subtle issues that might lead to much more major issues. Um, and you can prevent those things because you are doing proactive care. Exactly, exactly. And, and this was a key insight that Mark Roberts, um, the, the former CRO HubSpot, he was on our advisory board and he was really the impetus for this whole framework. Um, you know, we, we were having churn issues at that time, 
Um, and he was saying, you know, by the time you find out a customer's churn, it's too late. You can't really do a ton about it. Maybe, maybe, you know, there's something you do around pricing or you know, give them a discount, they'll renew, but the actual health account that they drop off a lot earlier than when you find out they've churned, even if it's coming up in quarterly business review. And so you really need to catch that earlier and you have to look for a leading indicator that correlates with churn. And so we did a lot of data analysis across our customer base, looking at product usage data, integration data, a lot, a lot of different things. And what we found was that if a customer doesn't use our product for 14 days, the risk of churn goes much, much higher. And that was in our case. I think other products, it's going to be different metrics, different thresholds for that. Um, but that was what we found. And, and that's kind of like the, the impetus for critical care. And that was one of the key instrumentations we had is detecting if someone hasn't used the product for 14 days, then we kind of swarmed that, that the, the, the customer and try to revive the account. But that wasn't the only indicator that we we're looking at. And just what you touched on was the instrumentation. Did you build instrumentation and telemetry into your product so you could, mon like you said, monitor the, the customer? That's right. Yeah. So I, so you know, I, I'm a, as I mentioned, I started coding as a fourth grade. So that's one of the things I do is I can write code on the side. I try not to write production code these days and, and not be on the critical path. But this is something in the back end. So <laughs> I. I, I, what I did is I integrated Heap Analytics. So Heap was our in-product metrics tracking. So I integrated their data with our accounts receivable data coming out of QuickBooks. So looking if they haven't used their product, if they have not paid their bills on time, which could indicate dissatisfaction or perhaps a, a change in, in, the, in the company and organization. Um, and then looking, integrating with our product directly to see if any integrations are broken. And so our products would integrate with other marketing automation vendors like Marketo, HubSpot, Eloqua, with Salesforce, with social media. And so if any of those things are broken, it's hard for them to get customer value because it's our product is not able to do its job. So if anything looked off, we would pump that warning into Salesforce. Salesforce would then send alerts and create a Zendesk ticket, it's an email alert, um, it's in a Slack message as well. And then on top of that, we then built a process around it. So um, I borrowed a page from software engineering. Um, so if you're familiar with Kanban, so Kanban is where you have basically you can think of columns and you're moving from from left to right. So you have your backlog and you're kind of moving tickets you know, across the thing to completion. So you have you they're they're sending the backlog, they're in development or they're in design, in development, deployment, and then they're they're complete. You know, as a simple thing. So what we did was we had a different set of um, of of uh, of steps here. So we had someone's detected they're in critical care. We've reached out to them. We've actually had an intervention. We intervened. Um, we revived them. They're now healthy at, at the end line. So this is kind of the different stages that we had. And every morning we do a stand-up, just like a software engineering team does a scrum stand-up and go through this process and and on a per um, customer success manager basis on for their accounts, talk about where each of those sticky notes is on the board and how they're progressing and what are the clear next steps that we can take to move them towards the end. Yeah. I want to dive more into that a little bit in just a little bit. But like you said, you know, most companies typically just do support onboarding and business reviews, and they're not really enough, even though they have their own place. So let's dive into each of these and then talk about when they are appropriate. So let's start with business reviews. They do have a place. It's just that they're not going to uncover. They're not going to constantly monitor the patient, as you described, for critical care. But business reviews do have a place. That's right. Yeah. And so business reviews, I, well, I, you know, I think 
Every company could do all four of these. It's just how much are done by the customer success team versus the product team. And so when we talk about companies doing this with a customer success team, and that's that's a high expenditure way of doing business reviews, um, I think it really makes sense when you have a product where you're typically on annual contract, um, you really need to check on the health account and your, uh, AS, your ARR, your ASP for that account warrants and you can justify having a CSM go and check in uh, on, on a regular basis. Um, and so that's, I think, how I think about that. But, you know, there are consumer products that do do this. So a, a common example is Spotify. You know, we don't think of Spotify as having executive business review, but mm. they have their, uh, I forgot the name of it, but they have their year in review mix that they send out to everyone that says, here are all the songs you listen to, here are the top tracks, that you listen to. And in some ways, that's like a business review. I think here's here's the health account. Here's what you listen to. Here's what you may want to do in the future. Here's some more interesting music. And they've automated that whole process. Um, and so I think consumer companies and companies with a much lower price point, Spotify is what, $10 a month? Even they can do a lot of these uh, customer success things, but they have to be automated just because the cost doesn't justify putting a human behind it. Right. But if I'm in, you know, software enterprise sales and I'm selling multi-million dollar deals, then there is a place for quarterly business reviews or maybe even an annual executive business review, right? As a proactive means of preventing a lot of issues and understanding what the customer is up against in the Absolutely. future so I can be prepared, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And, and as we talked about critical care in terms of detecting things, only a certain number of things can be detected programmatically. There's a lot of stuff that needs to be uncovered during those conversations. And the business reviews provide a forum for doing that discovery to discover what are some of the other issues that that may kind of be unforeseen. Yeah, and then, you know, there's like you said, in between these meetings, things could change and they could change very rapidly. And um, you also miss customers that don't participate in, the, in this, in a, in a business review too. So. You know, right there, you're leaving a lot of customers open. If we let's 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 go back and dig a little deeper into critical care, right? Um, you had spoken about. I heard you speak about different triggers that could, you know, alert you as to whether or not there was an issue. Like you said, 14 days with no product usage. Can you talk about a little bit about some of the other triggers that you? were alerted to and then realized, okay, this could be a real problem with this customer. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And and just on the usage, you know, that was particular to us and not all companies are like that. You know, um, not all products are like that. Our product was more like a gym membership. You know, if you don't, if you go to the gym every day, you're going to renew your gym membership. Probably if you stop going for two weeks, you're likely not going to show up ever again. And and our product was very much like that. There are okay. other products that do a lot of work behind the scenes. Um, example would be a marketing automation system where it's automatically sending out emails or collecting leads off your website. You don't need to be in the product every day for that to deliver value. Or um, and, and so so in our product usage was very important. Not every product is like that. Um, going back to your question about what are some of the other things. I, I break this up into three categories. There's triggers that are satisfaction based. So this could be NPS scores. So if someone gives you a low NPS score, um, which is like below an eight, um, if they have an overdue payment, something's late coming in, they're probably not satisfied. Um, or if they have a negative support, to, if the support ticket that they file is negative and you can kind of read into the sentiment of that or post support ticket often 
you can send out like a survey. How did someone do? And if they had a negative experience, that's also a, a low satisfaction. So those are all triggers. Uh, we used to do the NPS. So we used to use um, uh, I'm just kidding, uh, uh, Ask Nicely is, is the name of the vendor. And so we would pull um, 2% of our customers, 52 weeks in a year. So 2% of our customers every week would send out um, an NPS score and uh, and then look at how the scores came in. And if they're too low, then then we would trigger critical care based on that. Um, there's then product-based triggers. And so these could be, as we mentioned, drop in usage, broken integrations is another one. If there's user account changes, so if a user is removed, if there's a new user added, um, those are all signs that something's changing. You may need to reinitiate another onboarding sequence there. Um, and then there's change-based triggers. So these are the loss of a champion. The champion leaves the organization. You may be able to pick that off of LinkedIn. There's a management change, the acquisition of the company, or does the entire use case change for the product that they're they're looking to use it for a completely different um, purpose? And I think you you also have a higher level of triggers. Also, if I remember, there's the customer triggered and company triggered, right? Yeah. As we think about that, you know, I I, I break up onboarding, support, critical care, and business reviews based on. Are you going inbound or outbound? And is the company triggering it or is the customer triggering it? So if you look at onboarding, that's something the company is triggering. It, it goes from you've sold a product and now you are then as the vendor, you're pushing it into the onboarding sequence and it's something inbound. A customer has come to you as a new customer and it's company triggered. Support, on the other hand, is customer triggered. The customer has issue, they are triggering it. They're coming to you and that's coming inbound to you. Business reviews are something the company is triggering. It's not like customers are raising their hand saying, hey, I want to do a business review. Um, it's usually the CSM, the customer success manager, who is pushing for the business review. So that's company triggered and it's going outbound. And critical care, again, is outbound. You're going to the customer, but it's customer triggered. The customer, something is, is going on with their account. That's what's that's what's triggering. So that's how I kind of think of, of breaking up these different activities. So do, would I imagine that you had a like a dashboard that showed, you know, all your different customers, you showed whether it's you know, something that came in was company triggered or comp or customer triggered. And then you went down a level to, you know, for the three different other types of triggers that you had. And you started getting pretty granular as to, you know, what the issue was and then starting to categorize all these things so that you had better insight into what was causing the problem, you know, in yeah. general. Well, we, we kept it pretty simple for the reason that a lot of times you can get drowned in the data and then it doesn't become actionable. And so what we would do is this is the days pre-COVID, pre-remote work on a whiteboard. We would have sticky notes literally in each column. And um, we would have different colors for the sticky notes, which would then map to what the type of issue is. Um, and so if it was like a satisfaction based issue, it would have a certain color. If it's a drop in like product usage, it would be a different color. If it's a um, a more change triggered, it'd be a different color. So at a high level that would at a glance, let us know, like if you stand back from 20 feet, you can kind of know where, what the issues are. Um, and then as you zoom in, each sticky note, it has an actual customer name and it, it just becomes a very tangible process. And there's almost like a, um, like a dopamine hit moving that sticky note across the board for a customer success manager. So they can say, Hey, I, was able to reach out to the customer. I actually scheduled a call with them and intervened and had a conversation. Or after the conversation, I've actually noticed a change in their usage and they're now back in their product again. So just like I've seen how engineers get a kick out of shipping um, you know, a product and, and taking something from development to testing and testing to deployment, 
I was trying to replicate that same experience for the customer success team um, versus doing this in a digital dashboard where things move on their own. Um, you don't get the same satisfaction of, of an ownership of, of you moving things forward. So yes, we could have done more of an automated dashboard that moves things along as we intervene and notice things get revived. But I really want to um, promote a culture of ownership where people feel ownership of, of moving things forward versus things kind of happening on their own. Hmm. Now, certainly not all forms of customer success are applicable for every business, but, and, you know, business economics are going to determine which forms of customer success are used. Can you talk a little bit about how I would think about when each form was applicable? If I was a consumer business, maybe a, a software business going after, you know, SMB. And then if I was an enterprise business. Sure. Yeah. So I think let's start with, let's say consumer business. Yeah. So for consumer business, I think the vanilla form of customer success they need is support. When someone has an issue, they can call in and you can provide support. Um, Otherwise they're going to churn if they don't get that support. I think there are ways to automating support. Um, People have tried to do it through chat bots and so forth and self-help forums uh, to some extent. Um, they haven't worked that well, but I think things are changing with generative AI and it may be possible to you know, largely automate that support process. Um, but I think that's, yeah, starting with consumer business, that's like you know, what you need. To move up a step from there are B2B businesses that serve the SMB market. Um, so this would be, for example, MailChimp. Let's just take, for example, right? They're serving like small, small renders. Um, Constant Contact was an example of that from a previous era. And so they would provide support and then onboarding. And the onboarding is important because if a small business user doesn't know how to use the, how does it know how to, how to, does it know how to send out their first email campaign in the first place, then they're likely going to churn. And so you can't risk just having them walk through a self-help guide, especially if they're not technically sophisticated enough to do that. And so that's why onboarding becomes very important for that audience. The next step up are B2B mid-market customers. And so this is support onboarding. And then you need business reviews as well to check on the health account, check for single issues, and the price point warrants doing that. Um, And then the the ultimate is the critical care aspect of this um, for, for, I think, really enterprise accounts. Okay, so you talked about, uh, I'm going to go back to triggers, satisfaction triggers, product-based triggers, change-based triggers. And... So now you're taking a trigger and it's detected basically through automated means or maybe some sort of manual means, you know, walk me through like, how's the best way to respond if you're customer success? Yeah. So, so on, on triggers, on the no triggers, there, it's not just detecting, it's also tuning the thresholds on the triggers. So if instead of 14 days, if we made that two days, then I don't know, uh, maybe 80% 80% of our customer base is going to, after a weekend, you know, they don't use it over the weekend uh, or even through the week, 80% of customer base is going to show up as being in critical care and that we need to intervene there. And that is just going to cause a lot of noise, a lot of fatigue on the customer success team. And then ultimately, they're just going to feel overwhelmed and, and not follow the process. So I think it's very important, not just to set up the instrumentation for triggers, but to set the thresholding to detect things at the right level. And if you do this uh, incorrectly, you can get overwhelmed on one side, or if your thresholds are too high, you're not gonna, you're gonna miss a lot of the issues uh, that are coming in. If you have it right, what we actually noticed is that 
the percentage of customers in critical care directly mapped to the churn, um, you know, like a, a couple of quarters later. Um, and so, for example, when we started this whole process, when we tuned it, we had 60% churn, 60% of our customers are actually in critical care when we started. And then mm-hmm. we, we, we noticed that as the critical care kind of backlog reduced, our churn also correlated with that as well. So I think a, a well-tuned engine, you have those well, well correlated with each other. Interesting. Now, this happens a lot. I think I know what your answer is going to be, but I want to ask it anyway for the audience. What if, when a champion leaves the company and no one at the customer site's responding? Yeah, um, I, my, my preferred thing is to pull out the big guns, the executives, you know, in my case, as CEO, yeah. and try to go and up the top on both sides. Right. So you try to establish a new relationship at the top uh, if you don't have anything else or go back to maybe the buyer um, who isn't would maybe still be there, but they weren't the champion per se, and see if you, you can get in. Um, I, yeah, I'd love to hear it come some what you had in mind. What's some of the other approaches? What I had in mind is, you know, when you're onboarding, this is the perfect time to not only get the champion involved, but get a couple other people involved. So they're and, and have them, you know, involved in the onboarding process. So you have the yeah. names of those customers in, in case one of the champions, you know, did take off. Yeah. Yeah. Not just the captain, but the first mate, you know, you have them all yes, on, on, yes. on the Rolodex. Yeah. That makes sense. Now the reality is that it's almost impossible for a customer to be healthy all the time. So I can't keep probably can't keep every customer in critical care. Can I? So then what's the best way of proactively monitoring my entire customer base without keeping everyone in, let's say, the critical care mode. Yeah. So I, I think critical everyone. So I think everyone is being monitored. You know, if we take this patient analogy um, and actually, you know, I, I experienced this kind of after developing this critical care process, just a, a side story here. Um, last year, I broke my foot. And so I was immobile for a good part of the year. While I broke my foot, I had COVID as well. And then after my, after I had like, you know, I'd gone to physiotherapy, I still had plates in my foot. I could, I could walk, but I noticed I was severely out of breath, like, you know, just walking upstairs and things like that. And I wasn't sure is this long, a long COVID system, symptom, or is it just cause I'm like really out of shape and I haven't, you know, been mobile for a while. And right. so I went to the doctor and they actually put a heartbeat monitor on me that would rem- remotely monitor if I have any like, you know, symptoms, uh, you know, shortness of breath and so forth. And so I kind of, it's the side story. I've, I've kind of firsthand had that patient experience uh, here. Um, and so getting back to your question on, on critical care, I think every patient is monitored uh, through this framework. Every patient is monitored, but it's only the patients that meet a certain threshold that are put into critical care that require the attention of the customer success team. So you're monitoring every patient, you're looking at their usage, product usage, for example, you're looking at their payment history, you're looking at their NPS scores. Everyone's being monitored, but it's only people who have NPS score below eight or six, whatever you want to do it, who are who haven't used the product in over two weeks, who are more than 45 days late on their payment. You set your own thresholds, and then if they are, if they meet those thresholds, then they're in critical care. Um, and, and so that's how you scale it is you set thresholds to the point where it's consumable, but everyone needs to be monitored. If, if you're not monitoring them, then you have a blind spot. But don't you think the vast majority of companies or at least software companies that I've been involved with, they don't act, they have not taken the time to instrument they, uh, the software, you know, build telemetry into the system so that they can actually do, you know, critical care. Absolutely. Yeah. I think most companies have not done this. And 
it's not just telemetry that's this you know process that follows as well but yeah the telemetry is is the, is a, the first step here um there are software vendors out there that I think do provide some of this functionality to Tango is one that comes to mind. Um, so there are companies that are now focusing on monitoring customer health. Um, and, and in my case, you know, I kind of rolled my own, but um, that is like the first hurdle to, to I think, rolling out a critical care framework. Right. Now, you, I want to go back to what you said, the churn rate should approximate the uh, percentage of customers that are in critical care. So then when you're going to go back and set up, let's say you come going backwards, you now have that set. How would you go ahead and set up the appropriate thresholds for the triggers? Yeah. Um, I, so I, I think it's um, so a few things I'd factor. One is the capacity of your customer success team. What, you know, based on your resourcing, you know, if you have, if you, if you can, put in so, that much budget into you know, your cost of goods and really staff up your team. Yeah. Great to have a very liberal threshold there and, 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 and kind of really swarm customers, even if there's even a slight, slightest inkling, um, inkling that there could be a, a an issue here. But if it, I look at resourcing, so how much resources can you expend on this on, on one side? Um, and, and I think that that would determine it, but the other is numerically looking at your churn rate and getting it to tune to see, um, what percentage of your customer base is in critical care? What does your churn rate look like currently? And try to get those numbers to look up. So I think, yeah, resourcing on one side and then your churn rate on the other kind of revenue metrics. Let's talk about the people inside, you know, customer success. What about instilling the right mindset to make a real lasting change with in customer success? What, what Are there ways of accomplishing that and changing the mindset of your people? To, yeah, to where you talked about before, which was, ownership you know of the customer ownership of the problem absolutely yeah but i think there's there's cultures uh culture change where you're looking at the outcome and not the activities and that's the ultimate kind of our arbiter of, of success um and one of our co company slogans was customer success equals our success and really tying yourself to the customer success and not your attempt to success um another thing is you know money talks right and so having incentivization for your team so that their incentives are aligned. And so before we rolled out this critical care framework, our customer success team, um, I don't think they even had variable compensation. It was just like, you know, the sales team did, but that's the customer success team didn't. And so in the process of rolling this out, what I did is I implemented um, variable compensation actually based on these four forms of customer success and, and specializing customer success team members on these four areas. So we had, for example, some folks focus just on onboarding and their compensation was based on how quickly they can onboard a customer, but also the quality of the onboarding as well. And so that was part of their available compensation based on that. Um, the support person, I remember we would take a, eight, a full business day to get back to a customer on a uh, for a ticket, support ticket on average. And then I started compensating the support folks based on their response time. And that actually moved to five minutes. Um, and this is outside of business hours as well, because they just really want to hit their hit their numbers. Um, and so that 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 works. Uh, business reviews, I think, is more around um, renewal rates. Um, so renewal rates and upsells uh, is where the variable composition would, would correlate with business reviews. I mean, critical care, I think, is is tied in with the business reviews as well, because that's a way to. Um, increase your, your your renewal rates as well. So I think variable compensation really incentivizing um, incentivizes the culture change, um, and then leading by example is is also a great way of of, of 
actually getting on the phone um, as a leader, helping break through some of these accounts where customers are not picking up the phone um, and really supporting your team is a good way of leading by example there. But I think, you know, you had written that um, it has to be extreme ownership on, on behalf of the client success team, where if for any reason a customer stops using the product, it's a customer success problem. And it's that mentality, that mindset, that extreme ownership that I think really brings about, you know, world-class customer success people. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm a big fan of, of Jocko, the Navy SEAL, and if yeah. you've read his, his sure. extreme ownership book, right? And he talks exactly about that. If anything goes wrong on a mission, if that, you know, your rifle failed or any, anything, it doesn't have to be anything of your fault. You take ownership of that and and because you're really focused on the outcome of the mission. And I think for a successful customer team, they're focused really on the outcome and, and their mission is, is to renew a customer, for customers to be happy. And regardless of whether it's product problem, whether a customer pays a bill late, if the customer company gets acquired, anything that could put a customer at success, uh, the customer at risk, it's the customer success person's problem. Now, um, just lost my train of thought on that one. Um, yeah, here's where I wanted to go. I want to go back to the beginning, basically. So when you had 60% churn rate, 40% renewal rate, a lot of CEOs, whether they're in that situation or not, actually think of client success as like a cost center. You went and turned it around, you know, doubled your renewal rates. What was your mindset after that? Was it that client success is still a cost center or do you think that in the either in your particular example or in the future that client success done right with extreme ownership and all the and proactive, you know, critical care? Can it be a lot more than a cost center for companies? Yeah, I, you know, if you look at like the, you know, the. the the financials, it shows up as cost of goods sold. And so that's, I think, where that mentality comes in, that it's a right. cost. Right. But if you look at most subscription businesses, um, you know, they're adding maybe 25% of revenue on a year, let's say. The the rest of the revenue is actually coming in through the renewals. And so who's taking care of that? It's the customer success team. And so that's actually what's really driving the majority of the business. And so I think I've always seen customer success as, as being important, in fact, more important than sales because that's what's sustaining the business. Sales is 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 important for growth, but to sustain the business, customer success is re really drives it. And it in in kind of well-oiled machines, they're also doing upsells as well in, in growing the existing customer base as well. Um, I think the culture of ownership is is the um, enabling the customer success team to feel that same level of ownership that we own this. We're responsible for for the business as a whole for the for the, our business to exist and be healthy, it is our job. And regardless of whatever issues may be happening on the customer side, internally with sales, with products, um, with whatever hurdles we're facing, this is our job and the company really depends on us to, to deliver. And so translating that mindset and and making the customer team imbibe that ownership, sense of ownership that they're responsible for business just as much as CEO is, is, is where I think um, it, it, where good things happen. Yeah. Now, in a SaaS business, you have some time to fix the customer's problem before they might churn. But in as more and more software companies turn to a consumption model, you may not have as much time. 
to fix the customer problem before they churn. So do you think that there's any ways in which client success needs to change for a consumption-based business? Um, yeah, I, well, I think in consumption-based businesses, it, it shifts a little earlier, you know, it, it being proactive about things versus, yeah, as you said, you know, in SaaS, you can, you have some time to, to fix things and turn things around. In consumption basis, it, the, the, the bulk of the effort and the importance of the earlier stages so that neonatal care is super important, setting the goals, setting the, 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 the journey, what the customer journey throughout the, the course of the relationship is. Um, and then those business reviews of uncovering this, those, those become more important than the critical care in many ways. Um, but critical care is, is, is still, still important. Um, yeah. Poan, do you think that we forgot anything in this conversation? Anything that you want to add? Um, no, I think we, we we covered a lot of stuff, uh, and and um, you know I, this has really helped my business. It's not just like a theoretical framework that I put out there. I've actually seen this um, make a difference in numbers in a short period of time. Yet at the same time, I haven't seen a lot of companies. Uh, as a customer, when I'm facing other vendors, I haven't seen them kind of adopt this approach. And I think there's a ton of opportunity out there for businesses to to take a very proactive approach in terms of how they deliver customer success. I have one more for you. Um, in the old customer support model, um, before SaaS, software companies had more of a break-fix mentality. I wait till the customer's broken and I go fix mm -hmm. it. And yeah. the people that were in that customer support organization had that same mentality. I would basically sit back until something's broken and I go fix it. That's right. And, um, you know, you've really turned it around. I think a lot of software companies are turning it around. Do you think that you need to also hire people inside client success that have a different type of mentality from the beginning when you know when you're initially hiring them, absolutely. Yeah, I mean that's reactive and proactive, right? That's that's the the, the big big change here in, in mentality. And I think yeah, it does it does take a different way of thinking. I don't. However, you know, I think my my team um, when we hit that forty percent uh, renewal rate, we did have that reactive mentality. So I I think yes, if you can hire someone from day one who's proactive and has exhibited that quality in other aspects of their life or career. That's great. But I don't think that that's something that someone who has had that reactive mentality can grow into. I think that is coachable. That's something that they can grow into, especially if the culture is set around it where everyone else is, is being proactive about things. I think people naturally do that as well. So, um, yeah, I think, yeah, hire, hire if you can. But if not, regardless, you need to set up a culture where that's the norm. And what about for upsells? Do you think that client success should be involved in a lot of not just renewals, but also upsells and that that might take a different type of personality or different type of person to seek out additional people in the organization besides the current champion to do an upsell to the organization. Um, absolutely. So I think customer success has a very natural segue to upselling because they are, you know, if we take this medical, they're the doctors, they're the care providers, they're the, like the givers. You know, they're, they're the ones who really take care of the account. And so they're they're often just like how we trust our doctors with our health. Um, they're the ones the customers tr trust with the, the health of the account. And so they're in the best position to make the ask for a referral or to, to start that upsell conversation. However, I've also seen customer success folks who are so inclined towards that helping mentality that they often 
have a hard time going beyond that and going more into sales. You know, there's a little more self-serving. You're trying to get something from the customer. Um, And so that's where I think, you know, partnering them with someone who's more focused on upsells makes sense, but it definitely has to be a a partnership. Um, And then if you get, if you hire someone who's solely focused on the upsell and put them in the customer success role there, they may not be very good at the giving and providing. They're always, they're all just trying to make the sell sales. So I think they are, Two slightly different personalities, but they have to work well with each other to, to really make make that work. Yeah, great, Poan. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having me, John. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks to Poan, and thanks to everyone for listening to another episode of the Revenue Builders Podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.